Amen. If you have your Bibles today, go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Is going to be the main part of the uh, of the scripture we're going to be reading today. We have a couple other passages we're going to be looking at, but the main portion of our scripture today is going to be out of Hebrews chapter 10. Over the last several weeks, uh, Pastor Jason has been speaking and asking the question, um, how is your soul? How is your soul? If there's anything that I have seen over the last several years of people dealing with difficulties in this life is that people are weary. Not, not, not just a normal tired, guys. I'm talking about a weariness on the inside, something that is like we're, we're tired to the bones of our inner being, um, largely because of the circumstances that we've all found ourselves in over the last several years. And what that can lead to for us is, especially as followers of Jesus, is a, a, a almost a form of sadness or depression that can take over our lives if we allow it to. And the reality is, is we have a responsibility as followers of Jesus to do an examination of our heart. When, and the, reality, the, the, the truth is, is that when we stand before other people, when we come to church, it's very easy for us to pretend like everything's okay all the time. In fact, you, you can see this happen on, on a Sunday morning. You'll, you'll, you, during our meet and greet time, you probably had several people that came up to you and, and shook hands with you and gave hugs. And maybe their question was, you know, how are you doing? And a lot of times, what is our response? Fine. Okay. I'm doing well. But if there's something that I've learned about being a pastor and dealing with a lot of people is that majority of people aren't fine. Most of us, in fact, I would say if you look around this congregation right now, uh, everybody is having difficulties in their life of some kind. Everybody has issues in their family. Everybody has issues in their marriage. Maybe there's maybe some, somebody in their family that, that they aren't getting along with. Maybe their job is causing them stress and anxiety. There are things going on in your life that you wish were not part- happening in your life. And when that happens in our life, we have, a, we have an option when we come to a church like this. When people ask us how we're doing, we can actually pretend like everything's fine, put on that good, strong face in front of everybody else, smile, and act like everything's okay, or we can truthfully be honest with each other. The question is this, how, how can we do what God calls us to do about being an encourager to one another if we don't know that anybody else needs encouragement? And what the devil does, the devil tries to convince you that you're the only person who is struggling with whatever you are struggling with. The assumption that we have is that everybody else's life is together. They don't have problems, but I have a problem. So therefore, I'm going to hide my problems so I don't infect anybody else with the thing that I am struggling with. And when Satan convinces us of that, then what happens is when we are going through our struggles, we end up struggling alone, isolated, away from the rest of the body. In fact, what normally happens is that when you feel like you're struggling, one of the first things your flesh is going to want to do is to convince you that you do not need to participate in church. Sometimes the last place you want to be is in a church service. The last place you want to be is around Christian people because they all have it together and I don't. I don't have anything in common with people that have it all together. Well, I just want to speak the truth to you today that everybody in this room has issues. You all do. 
Now, some of you may think that your issues are less than others or greater than others, but in reality, we all struggle. And every day we are struggling with our flesh. If you're a follower of Jesus today, you have two voices in your head at all times. You have the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to you, trying to remind you of the truth of who you are in Jesus Christ, trying to quietly convict you of sin, trying to bring you joy and peace in the midst of suffering, trying to help change you from the inside out, helping you stop the sin that's besetting you and having you live a life glorifying to God. That Holy Spirit is constantly with you and never leaves. But the same, that same person that has the Holy Spirit also has a flesh. And your flesh is constantly trying to tell you all the things about you that are wrong, all the things that are not pleasing to God. It's trying to remind you of your past and try to define you by the things you have done in your past. And those two voices are fighting for supremacy in your heart and mind and soul. You see, when we allow our past to define us. The negative, sinful decisions that we've made to define who we are, then we live a life of, of, of feeling condemned and being down, and we can very easily become soul sick. When we hear the voice of God and, 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 and stand on the truth of God's promises, then we can stand rightly and have a, 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 a healthy soul in the way that we respond to the circumstances around us. So the question that Jason has been asking us is, how is your soul? And there's only two people that know how your soul actually is. Only two people. Number one is you. I'm not asking you what the faces you're putting on, the exterior that you're trying to show the people around you. Only you know how you are feeling on the inside in your relationship with God and your relationship with others. But the other person that knows is God. The Holy Spirit inside of you knows exactly what you're going through, knows how you're feeling, knows how that, the words that person spoke affect you, knows exactly how your physical health is affecting how you feel, all these things. The Holy Spirit knows what you're going through. And yet we, we try to act like he doesn't. In fact, we spend a lot of time almost trying to hide that stuff from God, like we think we can fool the God of the universe into thinking we're okay when we're not. Somehow we think if we're not okay, God's not pleased with us. When in reality, the reason he has given us the Holy Spirit, the Bible calls the Holy Spirit the helper. He knew that as followers of Jesus, we would need help. Help to keep our mind and our heart focused on his things. He knew that this Christian life, how to live rightly, would not be something we would be able to do on our own, under our own, our own power, under our own strength. And he gives us the Holy Spirit because in reality, he knew at the moment of our salvation, he knew exactly who we would be and what we'd struggle with. In fact, I find great hope in realizing that when Jesus was on the cross, he looked forward through the, 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 the line of time, and he saw you, all of your sin, pre-salvation and after salvation. He knew exactly what you would, how you would sin, what you would struggle with, all of that stuff, and he still decided that you were worth dying for. It's not like our sin somehow surprises God. We think it does. We, we live like, oh, my goodness, he just saw me do that. I, he must be completely ashamed of that because he had no idea it was coming. It's not true. 
He knew from the cross on, even in eternity past, exactly what sin you would, you would be participating in, the doubt you're experiencing, the struggles you're experiencing, and he still chose to die for you because he sees value in you as a creation of God, and he believes that we as, as, as human beings are worth dying for to redeem us. Now, if we can hold on to that, that will affect our soul health. But we believe we're under some kind of merit system instead, and when we fail, we think that somehow changes God's perspective on us. And it's not true. So how's your soul? Psalm 107 is the theme verse, verses 8 and 9 of this entire, of this entire series. And this is what the psalmist says. He says, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. For his wondrous works to the children of man. For he, the Lord, satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Now what Jason has been saying, and I, and I completely agree, this is what the word of God is saying, is that we want to define what those good things are. And for a lot of people, they, they, they tend to, to kind of put their definition of what is good onto God. And when the, our definition of good is not satisfied then we get mad at God. So we think having more money or stability is good. When we don't get that, we think God's not being good to us. Or we think um, having physical health is absolutely the top of what God's priority is for our life, and when we don't get it, we, we get upset with God because he hasn't given us physical health. And the reality is that, is that God is the one who gets to define what our good is. He's God. We're not. So we have to hold on to the, the promise that he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things, but we have to trust him to define what is good. The question is, do we trust him? You see, this world is filled with people who don't know him, who are seeking soul satisfaction and all kinds of stuff, stuff that will not satisfy more money, more security, better job, better house, more of this, more of that. We, but if we're not careful, people who are in a relationship with God can allow those same values, the same way of thinking to penetrate our lives, even though the Scripture tells us we have been given everything we need for life and godliness. We believe somehow that our, we're going to continue to seek that elsewhere besides in God. So we constantly, I don't know about you, but I constantly need help. I constantly need help to be reminded of who I am in Christ and where I should find my soul satisfaction. And that brings us to the goods that Jesus has secured for us. Week one, Jason preached on the reality that God, one of the goods that he gives us in order for us to have soul satisfaction, he gives us redemption. Church. If you ever get tired of hearing the fact that Jesus paid the penalty for your sins when you didn't deserve it, then you are need to check your heart. The number one reason we gather as followers of Jesus today is because he who knew no sin became sin for us. He took my sin and died on the cross, paying the penalty for my sin, even though I did not earn it and I certainly don't deserve it. And neither do you. The gift of salvation is a good thing. Can you agree with that? 
So the first way that we need to remember how to keep our soul healthy is to recognize that if you have received the redemption of Jesus Christ, you have received the greatest gift that is possible on this planet. I mean, the reality is this, that some of us would be more joyful if somebody gave us $5 million than we would be about hearing the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But eternity has been secured through Jesus Christ. That is an amazing gift. And he sees you as worthy of receiving that gift because he has made you worthy. Only because he decided that you are loved enough for him to die for. So the good gift number one is redemption. That should be an act of worship. Every time we hear the word, every time we think about what Jesus has done, we should be going into a process of worship, thanking him for the amazing gift, and yet I believe that we take it for granted on a regular basis. Good gift number one is redemption. Good gift number two is rest. The world's way of procuring goodness is you trying really hard to please God. But Jesus said, come to me, you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Where, where, where does that rest come from? I believe that that rest comes from the realization that salvation has been secured for us. So we do not have to worry about earning something that's been given to us. And instead of us trying to earn it, we live a life glorifying to him because it's already been given. We honor him. Because the burden of saving ourselves has been lifted, and he gives us a burden that is light. You are redeemed. Ephesians chapter 1 says, if you are a follower of Jesus today, you are holy, you're righteous, you're a saint, you're adopted. All these things have been given to you as a free gift of salvation. They are true about you no matter what you do. So instead of trying to earn these titles and spending all this time and energy to somehow procure things that already belong to us, we need to stand in the truth of who we are and then allow the truth of who we are to define what we do. See, it's a whole lot easier to, 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 to live the Christian life under the power of the Holy Spirit with the Spirit's help than it is for us to try to make ourselves right by working really hard. Don't get me wrong, we are to cooperate and participate, but we are to do so knowing that we are already loved and accepted. That's the truth. So good gift number one is redemption. Good gift number two is rest. The fact that we need to, at times, stop and allow God to be God of our life and trust that he doesn't always need me to do stuff for our good to be accomplished. Sometimes we just have to stop and believe God's in control. Now, we say we believe that, all the while we're trying to control every detail of everything, right? Sometimes we just have to take our hands off and say, God, I believe you've got this, and you have my good in mind. Good number one is redemption. Good number two is rest. Good number three is restraint. And we really don't like this one. We don't like the fact that it's a loving thing to set limits in a relationship. We don't like the idea that God can tell us what to do, what not to do, what is sin, what is not sin. And yet, what we learn from the Word of God is that in a relationship, limits are necessary for love to be expressed. In fact, it is the opposite of loving to let somebody in your relationship with to have no limits in that relationship. 
We know this even as parents. There are times when we have to set limits for our children in order to protect them and to express love to them. Now, do they like it? Do our kids always like having limits? I know I didn't when I was a kid. And I always wanted to push those limits as far as I could. You know, I'd spend my time out on the edge of the fence, like put my toe over the line a little bit here and there. But in reality, Scripture tells us that God disciplines those he loves and that there has to be limitations set for a relationship. And God, in his absolute love, gives us limitations in our life and our relationship so that we have a safe place to rest. You see, if you're living outside of those limits, there's no rest. Because if you step outside God's limits in your life, then you're stepping out from his protection. You're stepping out from things that, will, that he offers to provide for you, for, for you to have a location to, to be at peace and at rest in his presence. But at the same time, we get in our brain, when our flesh is in control, we, we begin to think that, that we should be able to do what we want, when we want, how we want. And the God who loves us gives us redemption. He gives us rest, but he also gives us restraint. He gives us boundaries so that we can have a safe place to rest. Number four is what I'm going to be preaching on today. We have redemption, rest, restraint, but he also gives us relationships, relationships with other people. Now, I know some of you are thinking relationships with other people. (laughs) Other people are the reason I don't have peace, right? I mean, I'm interacting with people all the time, and they're dealing with this and that, and they like to talk about me and struggle. I have family members that are annoying me. All these people around me are the very reason that my peace is being challenged. And yet, God's design for relationships is supposed to be something greater and something beneficial and something that breathes life into us through the church. But I'm afraid that for many, when they come to church or when they hang around Christian people, the last thing they experience is any kind of rest. So as we enter into this passage in Hebrews chapter 10, the question that I want you to begin asking yourself is this. Am I doing the things that this passage prescribes so that I can be an encouragement to other people, so that I can express love to other people? Read with me in Hebrews chapter 10, starting on verse number 19. The author says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I'm going to give you today six relationship instructions for soul health. Six relationship instructions for soul health. Before we get into that, I want to give you a little bit of context. Hebrews was written um, by somebody. We're actually not quite sure who wrote that. But in reality, we know who the, who the audience was. Can you, can you guess it from the title? Who is this written to? 
Hebrews, Jewish people. Now, what was happening was that all these people that had been reared in, in the practice of Judaism with the sacrificial system and all that kind of stuff, they had been taught from the Old Testament. They were the God's people, and honestly, they still are God's people. And the reality is, is they were taught one way of experiencing God. They were told um, all the things about the Old Testament law from making sacrifices, temple worship, uh, the idea that there was a place called the Holy of Holies where people, only the priest could enter in there once a year. He had to have all of his sins forgiven. If he had any unconfessed sin and he entered the Holy of Holies, he would be immediately killed by the holiness of God. This Holy of Holies was present inside the temple, and inside that Holy of Holies was an altar that, that blood would be sprinkled on in order to pay the penalty of Israel's sin for one more year. All of these things were something that the early, that the uh, Old Testament Christians would be trained on and they would know what this was. So the author of Hebrews is talking to people who practice religion that way, who all of a sudden gave their faith and trust to Jesus Christ. Now these people would probably have a little bit of struggle going from more of a, what had turned into a works-based salvation into a grace-based salvation. Let me clarify one thing. God has always offered salvation by grace through faith. Always. Old and New Testament. But we as human beings and the, and the Jewish spiritual leaders in the Old Testament, a lot of them had turned um, the Old Testament into a merit system that if you did enough good stuff based on the Hebraic law, that you could become and secure salvation. That it was more about being a good Jewish person than it was about trusting God for salvation. That's what the Pharisees had done. They had converted something that God intended to be a revelation of his grace into a list of do's and don'ts that people were trusting in to earn their own salvation. So the people that were getting saved out of the Hebrew faith, some of them were struggling with the idea that they had to trust God. So that's why from verses 19 through 23, he uses different pictures from, from the Old Testament, from, from the temple and, and sacrificial system to illustrate who Jesus was. He says in verse number 19, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. He's saying, we can enter now into the holiest place. In the Old Testament, it was only the, the priest that could go in there. And he had to have all his stuff forgiven or else he'd get killed. Now he's saying, because you've given your life to Christ and Jesus has made you clean and righteous, you can enter the Holy of Holies every single moment of your life. Anytime that you go to God in prayer, you are entering the Holy of Holies. And that was something that was completely foreign to these Jewish people. Then he goes on in verse 20, says, By the new and living way, he opened for us through the curtain. If you know anything about the temple, there was this gigantic, super thick curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from any other part of the temple. And again, it was designed to be impenetrable, except for that once a year, the priest would go through that to sprinkle blood on the altar. And now he's saying, we have had that curtain opened up for us through the flesh, the body of Jesus, his sacrifice. Verse 21, he says, since we have a great priest over the house of God. So he's using language to illustrate that while the high priest represented the people of Israel in the Old Testament once a year, now we have a perfect high priest who represents us before God all the time. He's our representative and he stands between us and a righteous God. 
What an amazing truth. Verse 22, he says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean. The Old Testament, in that temple again, the, the priest would enter the Holy of Holies, and he would take blood of a, of a pure lamb, and he would sprinkle that blood on the altar of God as the act of atonement for the people of Israel. And he's saying that our hearts have been sprinkled clean because of the blood of Jesus, because of the sacrifice he made on our behalf. And our bodies washed with pure water. There was water ceremonies of purification that happened in the Old Testament over and over and over again. So what is the author doing? He's trying to get the people who had been so so saturated with self-effort and Old Testament law and all these things to recognize that Jesus came to fulfill the law. He didn't come to eliminate it. He came to fulfill the law. But by doing that, he has become the sole source of our salvation. His work, not ours. His sacrifice, not ours. His blood, not the blood of a lamb. His blood. All of these things work together for salvation. And he wants them to recognize that that is the security. Jesus is the source of security, even when you're facing difficulties in this life. But the question is, do we remember those things? i got to give you six things pretty quickly here. How do we, in relationships, have soul health? How did the people of the Hebrews discover how to remain healthy in their soul even when they were facing some very difficult circumstances. He gives us six instructions, six commands. Number one, he says, first off, we have to draw near to God. You see, God never leaves us. That's a lie. If you believe that God has walked away from you, it's not true. Scripture actually says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We tend to believe that when we are sinning, when we're doing something bad, that God has departed from us or maybe we're not getting God's blessing. We, we think God's left us. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you have Jesus in your life, if you have confessed your sin and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Scripture says you are saved and God will never leave you nor forsake you. So what does that mean? That means that if we do not have a close relationship with God, it's not because God's not there. It's because we have turned our back away from God and we are just not recognizing his presence in our life when we're dealing with circumstances. So he says, number one, if you want to have soul health in your life, number one, you have to take some initiative in drawing near to God. Recognize that he will not leave you nor forsake you. He even says in the Old Testament, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. You see, God's presence is not dependent on your earthly circumstance. There are times when we feel closer. There are times when he feels distant. But the reality is, is that his distance from us never changes, ever. So step number one is that we need to draw near to God. Now, what we have believed that this drawing near to God is something that is uh, completely personal. In fact, I've heard people tell me through the years, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be around Christian people. I can feel close to God while I'm fishing. I love fishing, by the way. One of my favorite things. And the truth is that you can have good alone time with God while you're fishing, while you're doing chores. Whatever it is you enjoy to do can be done as an act of worship as long as it's not opposed to the Word of God. You can do all those things as an act of worship to God and draw close to Him. But here's where the lie comes in. While our faith is supposed to be personal, 
It was never intended to be private. It was never intended to be private. In fact, we have been called in this passage to live our life of faith in the presence of other Christians who live their life in faith. Well, why do we need to do that? Well, look at number two here. Number one is we are commanded to draw near to God. Number two, in verse 23, it says we are called to hold fast our hope without wavering. Hold fast our hope without wavering. And I don't know about you, but I feel like I waver a lot. When something terrible happens that just shakes up your world, you're a human being. So therefore, your faith is something that can be shaken by the circumstances that you face. During that time when your faith is shaken, that is the time where we need one another the most. We do. Draw near to God. Hold fast our hope without wavering. Number three, get together to encourage each other to love God, love people, and do good works. Go back to verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. In other words, when we get discouraged, when our heart becomes tired, we need to be able to have other people in our life that we can walk alongside. And there are going to be times when I'm going to be doing the encouraging. There are times when my faith is strong and your faith is weak and I need to come alongside you and put my arm around you and remind you of the truth of God's word so that your faith can be restored to the, to the point of not wavering any longer. But you see, if we are alone in our, in our suffering and we don't have anybody to encourage us, we, we kind of live in the echo chamber of our own mind and we hear only the negative about what our experience is coming into. Scripture tells us to get together. Why? We, to encourage one another. You need encouragement. You do. But if you isolate yourself from other Christians, then you will get none. Because God chooses for whatever reason in his perfect sovereignty. He decides that when we get together, he has given some people the gift of encouragement. And there are times when he uses people that don't have the gift all the time. He gifts them in the short term to be an encourager to you. And if we isolate ourselves from people, we miss that. The Holy Spirit is an encourager, but sometimes I need the Holy Spirit in you to encourage me. Amen? Now, I know I'm not the only one who needs encouragement. Because if you're looking at this world around you right now, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't look encouraging. But instead of getting, here, here's the problem. A lot of times when we do get together, we aren't in it to encourage. We're in it for a big pity party where we talk about how evil the world is or how evil things are going, and we remind each other of the evil that's out there instead of the truth and the hope that we have through Jesus Christ. You're right. The world is not a great place. Things are going wrong. People are sick. People are dying. But how we respond to suffering is what makes us different than the world. And in order for us to keep our mind on the teachings of God, on the promises he's given us, we need to be there for each other. And honestly, this is one of the things I believe that COVID tried to steal from us. 
COVID tried to steal this because we couldn't get together in large groups anymore. And for many, their, their interaction with other Christians stopped when you can't get together with 200 people. Listen, when the author of Hebrews gave this command, he wasn't necessarily talking about getting together with 200 of your closest friends. When they were getting together, they were getting together daily in each other's houses for meals, breaking bread together, and encouraging each other from the word of God. He was saying, don't, for, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves. He wasn't necessarily uh, saying, um, assemble with all the Christians in your town. He was saying, when you're struggling, you need to have a group of people that are there to remind you of the truth of God's word so you can encourage one another. In fact, I will say this. It's quite possible to attend church and not be doing this. The command is don't forsake the assembling of yourselves. It doesn't mean just go to a church service, sit there, and leave as soon as possible. He is saying in the church relationship, be with other Christian people so you can encourage them and they can encourage you with the teaching of God's word. In fact, we have over-isolated even the idea of personal devotions. I think they're good. But if we only ever read Scripture and, and, and interact with Scripture by ourselves, we run the risk of our brains deceiving us into thinking we understand things. And I need you to challenge my understanding of Scripture in a one-on-one or one-on-few-people relationship. You see, we all need each other. So the, the one is draw near to God. Two is hold fast our hope without wavering. Three, get together to encourage each other to love God, love people, and do good works. Who are you gathering with? Who and, and, and not just who are you hanging out with, but are you engaging in scripture processing with other people around you? That's what this is calling us to do. Remind each other of the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Number four is very similar to number three, but it's almost... It's turned on its head. It's an opposite way of thinking. It's like you're going to have to actively choose to fight against the habit of not getting together. In other words, it's discipline. I've had many friends who got in the habit of not participating in church life during COVID. Um, because once you get in the habit of not participating, it's very easy to continue that habit. Now, again, I'm talking about people that are not participating in any kind of life group setting. They're not interacting with other Christians. I'm not talking about people who have a, 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 a sickness issue or something like that. I'm talking about the reality is that Satan wants to convince you that you don't need anybody. And Satan wants to convince you that it's okay for you to be comfortable and isolated. And, and the author of Hebrews is saying you have to be disciplined about fighting complacency in your walk with God. And you're going to have to go out of your way to make time to be with people that are going to encourage you with Scripture. If you don't make time specifically and, and, and encourage you, what you, if you don't encourage yourself, if you don't become disciplined about it, the world is going to fill up every block of time in your life so that you do not have time to be encouraged by others. So not only does he say get together, he says actively choose to fight against the habit of not getting together. Number five. He talks about the importance of mutual encouragement should increase as the return of Jesus gets closer. Again, in verse 25, 
He says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And what that says and what's happening is exactly the opposite. In the early church, they got together every day. They were further away from Jesus coming than we are. Jesus could come back any moment. And only one of you is excited about it. Jesus can come back any moment. And the scripture tells us that as we get closer to that day every day, that things in this world have the potential to become worse and worse, especially for the lives of Christians. And it's going to become more and more difficult to live a life glorifying to God, to walk the path of Jesus in the face of a world whose values are going in the opposite direction. So he says this. He says, the closer we get to Jesus the more important it's going to be for you to be with other Christians who can encourage you in your walk. All the more as the day of Jesus approaches. And yet, what has happened for us is, even as I spoke to you earlier and I said, these Christians were getting together every day. Some of you are like, there's no way that I'm getting together with Christians every day. I don't have time for that. Well, I'm not saying that it needs to be a formal service. And I'm not saying it needs to be a church service. But here's the reality of it. You need to be interacting with people that can encourage you in your faith every day. If Jesus, if, if, if you say that Jesus is the Lord of your life, do you think he might should be a topic of conversation in your life? We talk about whatever is most important to us. And if Jesus is supposed to be important to us, we need to be making an effort to have a conversation, yes, with the lost, but also with followers of Jesus. In our own family, in our work, wherever people are, we need to be talking and being reminded of the truth of God's word, even in the midst of difficulty. And why is that important? Because in verse number six on our list, we are to remind each other to stand on God's promises. Because it is God's promises that give us hope even in the midst of some of the most trying times in your life. How do you stand and have hope when things seem to be working against you? It's because God is, he makes promises and he will keep his promises. I'll give you an example of this from my own life. My brother passed away in December, um, completely out of the blue. And his passing rocked our family's world. I mean, it has been... Um, one of the most difficult things that any of us have gone through in our lives. And it's very easy to become despondent when you lose somebody you love. Many of you have gone through that process, and it is a deep challenge. Now, here's the reality. I'm a pastor. I know what the Bible says, right? I've studied it. I've got a master's degree in it. I can quote a lot, big chunks of it to you. So I know in my head and in my heart that my brother is in the presence of God, and I will see him again. But I don't always feel that hope because... The real-life circumstances of what we've gone through, when you're in the day-to-day -day living of the world, your heart just breaks from that loss over and over again. So a couple of weeks after his passing, uh, I don't remember who it was, but somebody came to me and said, you know, one of the cool things that I just thought of is that um, your brother is spending time in heaven with the daughter he never met. My, my, my brother and his wife had a miscarriage um, at the very early onset of their marriage. Um, before, they've had five kids since. He's 42. And so, but he, they never got a chance to hold that baby. 
And so this person came to me uh, as a way of encouragement. was like, you know, the coolest thing is that he is seeing, you know, all your loved ones, you know, Grandpa Cloyd and, Gra- and Granny Meeks and Grandma Noni and all these people. He's getting to see them. But especially the child who he never got to see on this planet, he's walking in heaven with them and enjoying time in heaven with them. And that, my friends, was massively encouraging to me. Because it, what it did is it took the generalized teachings of God's word. It took what I believe to be true, God's promise. If you place your faith and trust in Christ, you will live forever in a place called heaven and a new heaven and a new earth. You'll get to see all your loved ones who trust in the Lord again. You will see all these people again. But then it put legs on it for me in recognizing that my brother who died at age 42 is getting reunited with somebody he loved and never got to meet, and it brought hope to my heart. You see, I don't know that I would have necessarily connected those dots. But what it did is it provided a believer who knew the truth, had a relationship with me, reminded me of the truth, encouraged me, and brought an encouragement to my heart that might not have otherwise been there when I had been facing one of the most difficult times of my life. You see, that's the power of a community of faith. That's not something that can happen in just a room of 300 of your closest friends. You're not going to get that personal one-on-one encouragement from other followers of Jesus if the only time you interact with Christians is in a room of 300 people because you can come into this room, interact with nobody, and walk out and have had no experience of any encouragement or accountability in the life of other followers of Jesus. But God has called us all the more as the day approaches for Jesus' return to, to be an encouragement to one another. Because in order for us to be healthy in our soul, we need each other to remind us of what the truth is in this book. I need you to remind me. You need me to remind you. And if you look around this room right now and you see all these people in this room, everyone in this room has a struggle. Everybody. And God may be speaking to your heart right now to be an encourager to somebody else in this room, and you need to answer that call. But if you're isolating yourself, you'll miss out on amazing things that God can do in your life through other followers of Jesus. So, who are you talking about Jesus with? Who are you interacting with? Who are you encouraging? And who are you being encouraged by? I pray that God is doing something in your life through a relationship with others. If not, we have provided opportunities through life groups that are not on Sunday morning, in Sunday morning also, but there are opportunities for you to get to know people so that you can build those relationships. If you're not in a life group, you want to be in one, come, come talk to me. So that we can get everybody in this room in a relationship where they can choose to be an encourager and be encouraged by others. Don't walk this world alone. That's not the way you were designed. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. In Jesus' name.